Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Today on Model Mentality, we have with us Dylan Lynch. Dylan is a formal model who began modeling officially at the age of 10 and was represented by Ford Models, Milk Management London, and Next Models Worldwide. She worked for brands such as Abercrombie & Fitch, Pottery Barn, O'Neill, Sephora, Selfridges, and more until the age of 19 when she retired and attended NYU. She recently received a degree in sports law and psychology and is currently working on social and digital media for the New York Jets. Through her personal experience and past struggles with an eating disorder, anxiety, depression, and substance use disorder, she plans to combine her work in sports and her passion for recovery to work towards reducing the mental health and recovery stigma for professional athletes. Thank you so much of for being course, here. Thanks for having me. So how old were you when you first started modeling? And can you describe how you got scouted and what the start was like for you? For sure. So I started modeling um, at the age of 10, officially. I was scouted with my sister while we were with my dad at a San Francisco Giants baseball game. Um, and these two women came up to us and they introduced themselves and handed, you know, these these thick, nice, like Ford business cards and said, if you're ever interested in modeling, please reach out. And I remember we went home and I was super excited because I'd never had anything like that. I'd never had anyone approach me before like that and said like, oh, like, here's how you can actually start modeling. Um, so, yeah, and I remember it it took a little bit because my mom and my dad got together and had a long conversation about, you know, if they wanted um, my sister and I to, to do something like this. And they decided that, you know, as long as we stayed in school and it was only part-time, you know, we would, we would have fun with it and see where it goes. So that's how I started modeling. And then I did a test shoot with my sister and I still have the photos from that very first test shoot. That's where I learned what like a test testing photo shoot was like. Um, but yeah, that's how I got started. Can you remember how you felt about it at that age? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit hard since I was 10. Um, but I was just really excited. I was really excited. I was excited because I got to miss school for it. I was excited because I kind of got to come back and tell my friends about sort of, you know, the day that I had had, um, and yeah, I was, I was, I was very intrigued by it. Um, at the time when you, when you're, when you're 10 years old and you're modeling, like they, the production's always like there is a teacher on set. You're only working a certain amount of hours. Um, your, your parents are there. They always require like a guardian to be there. So 
my mom and I would have a fun time, like, you know, driving to, to shoots and, you know, sometimes we'd bring our own wardrobe. So we got to go, you know, shopping beforehand, kind of come prepared. And I, I loved it. I loved getting my hair and makeup done, um, made me feel sort of, you know, special. And, and it was really exciting that for the first couple of years. Um, but I remember it being, it was, it never really felt like a job. It was more just kind of like a fun activity. Um, it wasn't until it really turned into a job that I really started to like get an idea of what the modeling industry was. And how do you think modeling at such a young age affected your development of a sense of self? Yeah. Um, that's where it kind of gets, gets into the, the, the realm of, um, it affected me so much. It affected um, everything from it kind of first off, the first thing I, I noticed was it, it really isolated me from the rest of my classmates. Because, um, you know, if I missed school, I'd have a hard time catching up. And I would share some things about it with my friends. But a lot of people kind of eventually started to sort of get like, you know, how do you call it? Like, I just felt ostracized. I felt different. I felt like, you know, my friends back home, you know, they were going to soccer games, they were going to volleyball games. And here I was doing this obscure thing that like, nobody, nobody really else was doing. And so I started to notice that it, it really made me sort of feel ostracized. And then that's when sort of like, the body image came into play. And as you get older, you know, your body changes, I went through puberty, I, you know, my body developed, you know, I was no longer like, stick thin like I was you know growing up and 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 my body was developing and it kind of um it was always sort of in the back of my head an influence of okay like you know I have to look a certain way it matters you know it matters if I am in a soccer game and you know I fall flat on my face and I get like a a face scar or something like it matters I remember my dad always telling me I, I had like a cut on my nose once and so I wanted to put a band-aid on and he was like you can't can't put a band-aid on it because then you'd have a tan line and that wouldn't be good for modeling so it was like everything kind of at the end of the day came back to sort of like my appearance and so that started to really change kind of how how I saw myself and how I made sure that like I was presentable to other people and that was kind of a continuance in in sort of my life and my story. So what age were you when your parents stopped traveling with you to set and you started to do this kind of more on your own? And can you remember how you felt about modeling at that time? Like if anything changed for you? Yeah, for sure. It definitely, it developed. Um, I started to model on my own and go to my own castings and go to my own shoots and not have a guardian with me, I think around the age of 14, 15, I was still, I was still in like the kids division at the agency at Ford agency. And so I still had the same agents, but they were starting to prepare me for the, the young adults, you know, the teens, the eventually to become, I forget the, the term for it, but um, basically they were getting me ready to be a, an adult, you know, 18 and, and then everything goes once you hit that point. So in order to do that, a lot of people to develop their or a lot of models, I should say, um, to develop their skills, they go overseas. So they'll go to places like, you know, China, Japan, like other massive markets. And so I didn't want to commit to, if you go to those locations, 
you have to go for at least like three months or more. And that was, I had a summer break, but it was still really important for my parents to, for me to stay in school. So they said, you can, we can do something else. We can't do a three month commitment, but we can do something else. So I went to London on my own when I was 15 years old, 14, 14. Um, Signed with an agency over there that was a sister agency of Ford in Los Angeles and lived in London. Um, my parents kind of came and went sometimes like they helped me move into this model apartment that I that I had actually surprisingly to myself. That was the only model apartment I ever had to myself. But um, yeah, so I was I was riding the London tube all alone, 14 years old, going around to castings, going around to shoots, trying to sort of, you know, get my foot in the door in the London market. Um, when people talk about modeling, they talk about like the differences in markets and London compared to New York compared to LA is very different. I think London's kind of like a combination of some commercial like LA and some sort of not so much high fashion, but that was kind of the direction my agency was pushing me. And my agency was pushing me because I had larger than normal model size, which, you know, normal model size hips would be like a 34, 35 max. And I think I was like a 36. Um, hips, oh no, waist. That was your hips. Yeah. Hips, hips were 36. Waist was, waist was much smaller, but um, because I had a 36 inch hips, I couldn't do any high fashion. Um, it just wouldn't work. Um, like the clothes, you know, the, the fit sizing that they have, like, um, so they were pushing me in kind of the bikini lingerie route, but I couldn't fully go into that section of the industry until I turned 18 for like legal reasons. Um, so they were preparing me with sort of more like commercial division, more kind of forget direct booking. It was like the direct booking like side of, of, of the industry. Um, and yeah, so, so that was, I felt when I was on my own modeling, it still was partially exciting. And I was still young enough where I wasn't doing any of like the networking and the parties yet, but, but I was kind of getting an idea for, you know, what, what a modeling life was like, which is, you know, long days, long hours, lots of uncertainty. You don't know, like, if you're going to get the job or not get the job, you don't have a steady income. There's no sort of certainty anywhere and you're meeting new people. It's, it feels very, I started to feel very alone in it. Yeah. I think that's the best way to describe it is I started to feel very alone and just alone in the world in general. So Dylan, I mean, I hear what you said that you were alone in teenage years, which is an unusual experience, right? Usually people are at home or with their guardian and what did that do to you emotionally? You know, and I'm specifically curious if living in London at the age of 14 was an adventure or do you recall fears, anxieties, worries, insecurities that came up as you were encountering this new situation? Yeah, um, I think that the, the hardest part about sort of not always being at home and the period of development in which, you know, you're normally around your parents is I felt this sort of deep homesickness. And I was reflecting on this a couple of weeks ago because I still sort of feel it here and there to this day. Um, homesick for like the environment in which I feel safest, the most comfortable, protected, shielded. Um, I feel like I have support. And 
when I was traveling on my own, I knew I had that. I always had that back home. I was very lucky that my parents were always supportive and they wanted me to sort of do the best in whatever it is I wanted to do. Um, but I started to kind of like the lines became blurry as to I was being pushed to find my community, my career, my identity, my brand at the age of like 16. And that's not when you're supposed to be developing things like that in your life. That's when you're supposed to be, you know, developing friendships. You're supposed to be, you know, developing your, your skills in the classroom, your skills with coaches and your skills with, you know, other, other things. Um, so I felt very different. What about high school and your education? What did you do? How did you continue that pathway? So it was really important for my family for me to always remain in school until um, college, which I always plan on taking a gap year before college. Um, and that's sort of where my, my story started to get, you know, really different than, than many other people's. But in high school, I felt um, I had a really bad high school experience, but I was thinking about this sort of, you know, how I wanted to, to talk about this in the podcast today. Um, I had a really bad high school experience, but it was partially, it was not because of the place or the people. It was because I think I just, I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I fit in. I had a really hard time with friends. I had gotten sort of, you know, involved in these like high school romances. And, and I put sort of, I'm a very empathic person and I put everyone's wants and what I thought everyone wanted from me ahead of myself and so I still felt like you know I was doing all of the on the outside I was doing all the right things you know like I was on varsity volleyball my freshman year I was you know a part of student government I on the outside like had you know good grades but I just I never felt like emotionally sort of nurtured and taken care of um and I had, you know, my parents are great and they were, they were really good at teaching me sort of good values, good, good things to kind of how to go about being a good person and being kind and, and looking at the world in a sense of, you know, what is my part? How am I affecting the world around me? But it was, I think the one point that I, I, I wanted a little bit more on was how does the world affect me? How does it make me feel? How, how, what is my relationship to myself? I wasn't really taught by example, sort of being in touch with like yourself um, and self-confidence and self-love. Like they were ideas that were placed in front of me to think about, but they weren't ideas that I was actually taught how to like cultivate. Like, how do you cultivate, you know, your self-identity and you're still young. So it was very much like I was always trying to be 10 years older than I actually was. Like I was in high school thinking about, you know, how am I, how am I going to start my career, you know, in my life? And I'd already started my career. So how am I, how am I going to make a footing? How am I going to make a name for myself in the industry? And that was something that was really scary. There's a lot of models and there's a lot of girls doing sort of doing the same thing um, in the industry. And that was something I never really found in the industry, which I think, you know, when you guys first asked me to kind of, you know, do the, this podcast, I got really 
not insecure, but I, I was like, I was like, you know, no, my story doesn't matter. Like nobody, nobody wants to, to hear about this normal girl, like this average model that did average jobs and, you know, was, didn't really make a name for herself. But then again, like I represent that sort of average, average person, average person that does pursue it as a career. Um, and then also chooses to, you know, put it aside and pursue other things. And how do I, I find myself like outside of after, you know, retiring from modeling three or four years ago, how do I find myself like outside? And I know this is definitely very off track and not what the question was at all whatsoever. But um, yeah, I just, I think I kind of just wanted to hone in on, on like, I'm a really good example of, you know, average regular and like how it's still the same things and the same it all still fits it's all still sort of like I find my story and so many other girls stories and that's just kind of why I wanted to you know come on today was just to share share sort of something that hopefully will be relatable to some people yeah and I'm so I'm no and I'm glad you're opening up about this and I'm struck by how complicated that formative time right middle school beginning of high school is and how disrupted your your experience was compared to the normal let's say middle school high school experience so so can you then tell us in that context how did your eating disorder emerge yeah so my eating disorder developed in my high school years and it actually interestingly enough had nothing to do with modeling at the very beginning of it it had to do with my volleyball team and i was on a volleyball team freshman year I was on the varsity volleyball team and I remember there was there was um a couple girls from the team that I really looked up to and they came to me one day in the cafeteria and they said they made an assumption about me that that I'd already developed an eating disorder which I hadn't um I was always very slender and and naturally skinny um and I hadn't gotten like it's probably a lot of information but I hadn't gotten my period yet so I hadn't kind of like you know, my, my body hadn't, hadn't filled out yet. So I was still super th like stick thin. And they said, so they assumed that I already had a eating disorder. And they said, is it better to not eat at all? Or is it better to throw up after you eat? And I was confused. I didn't know what they were talking about. I was like, what do you mean? And they kind of just laughed it off. And also on the team, my nickname was thigh gap everyone called me thigh gap because I was the only one on the team that like had a gap in between my thighs and at first I was like oh there's nothing to complain about like it's kind of like a backhanded compliment but like it actually did you know bother me um so then I went home and I had you know the internet at the time and so I looked up and I remember it was a, like a Britney Spears or some music video um in which you could see girls that were like binging and purging in it and I was shocked I was like terrified of it. I remember going to my mom and being like, what is this behavior? Like, what is this act of throwing up after you eat? And she was like, you know, and she told me, she was like, the only time that I've witnessed it or heard about it was when I was in a college dorm, um, when I was in college and when she was in, you know, when she was in college and it was, um, she was living in a dorm and there are obviously communal bathrooms. And so she was like, that's all I really know about it. And we kind of left the conversation at that. And I was like, okay, you know, I ignored it, let it be for a little bit. And I started to kind of have social problems and relationship problems and my emotions were all over the place. And I was really struggling to find kind of an outlet for my anger, an outlet for my sadness, an outlet for my normal teenage, you know, frustration and angst. 
And then I, I was like, hmm, let's try this. Um, at the time I was trying kind of like an assortment of different things, but in terms of the eating disorder specifically, um, I was like, let's just see, you know? So I did it and I was like, oh, that's uncomfortable. I don't really like that. And then, you know, a couple, a couple weeks, months went by and I was like, hmm, maybe I'll try it again. Tried it again. And then it went from, you know, once a month to once a week to once every day to every single meal. Um, and it was like this slow, it was a very gradual, but it was a slow progression. And sort of the, the, I think the reason it kind of like started to develop was not only because I have a very addictive personality and kind of like that, that was my progression with a lot of things in life was that slow, gradual until like all, all of a sudden I'm in the middle of this, like, you know, maladaptive coping mechanism. Um, and every single, you know, you could take it with eating disorder or you could take it and you could put it in the context of substances or you could put it in the context of sex or you could put it in the context of so many other different things. You know, my, my control behaviors and stuff like that. And the relief that the act of doing it was giving me was this sort of it was really about control at the end of the day. And I wanted to have control over myself, my body, my thoughts, my wants, my needs, control over everything in my life. And so I felt so out of control in so many external areas of my life. My body and my image was the only thing that I could control at the time. So I was getting this sense of satisfying my need for control and controlling everything else from this one behavior. And you know, it, it works for a certain amount of time, obviously it's not healthy for you, but it satisfied that need within me. So to a certain extent, like it wasn't helping me cause you know, obviously it was helping me in a negative way later on, but in the moment it was satisfying that need within me. Um, and yeah, it just kind of continued until, until my body was so weak and couldn't support itself and I was then hospitalized for about two months, my junior year of high school. I had to miss two months of school. I was in an inpatient hospital and they were trying to get my, you know, forcing me to be trying to get my, my body back to like a place where it could actually take care of itself. And then from there was sort of a long recovery. And I stayed, I stayed kind of in an outpatient program in which I was weighed every single week. And, you know, they do this, diagnostic thing where they make sure that you know your heart can when you go from laying to, to standing your heart can can pump blood throughout your whole body in the time that it needs to in order to kind of be considered at like you know a healthy weight so that was kind of that was my entire junior and senior year was I was just recovering from this eating disorder that only really had lasted two years but I'm I'm still I would say even though I don't haven't participated in the behavior in many, many years. Like I still consider myself in recovery from an eating disorder because my eating disorder was all about control and it still sort of pops up here and there, like in my life in other forms. So it's always something that I kind of keep an eye on. Um, yeah, and Dylan, it sounds like it's the physical aspect, your health that got in the way of you being able to function. Cause I know you told me what caught the attention of the health system is that you passed out in the middle of the street in London. But I'm curious, prior to that happening, did you notice things were wrong? Or what was your view on what was happening? Yeah, 
No, I mean, I, I've always had sort of self-awareness and I knew the behavior was affecting me negatively in a physical and sort of emotional sense. Like I knew it wasn't, you know, I try and sort of avoid the words like right and wrong. You know, I, I, I don't want to say like, you know, I knew the behavior was wrong. Um, even though like at the time, that's what I thought, you know, I knew the behavior was wrong, but then I consciously chose to ignore that fact. And I always, I started to carry some guilt and shame around the fact that I knew that I was doing something wrong, yet I was still consciously choosing to continue the behavior. So it, that's really where my, my dilemma of, of wrong versus right started. And sort of like, I had these feelings of shame and guilt of why am I doing this to myself? Like, why am I doing this to my body? Why am I? And that's where it kind of, you know, the, the relief that it brought me at the time was, was what it was making me sort of continue the behavior. But yeah, I, I, I knew it was wrong. I just couldn't figure out why, why I was consciously still deciding to do it. You know, I still struggle with that. Yeah. And maybe a lot of it was unconscious or subconscious. That w- what was driving it. So I know you said that one, one addiction transferred to another addiction. So it was the binging and the binging and purging then to substance use. So can you tell us about that transition and what happened there? Yeah, that transition was kind of really snuck up on me um, because I was seeing, since I was in recovery for my eating disorder, that was the first time that I was seeing a therapist. I was seeing a therapist and I was seeing a psychiatrist. Um, and with my therapist, I was working on, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT and doing that to sort of, you know, take a look at the behaviors and my eating and all that stuff. And then with my psychiatrist, we were trying to tackle what I was, I was diagnosed with at the time, um, anxiety and, and depression. Um, and so we were kind of trying to figure out like if medication was the right, route for me to kind of help in my recovery from this eating disorder. And that was kind of where it snuck up on me because I was having problems sleeping, you know, my eating was out of whack, my emotions were out of whack, my my mental state was just like I was all over the place. So I was having problems sleeping and then the the psychiatrist that I had at the time was like, "Well, have you tried Ambien?" I said, no, I have no idea what that is. And so she prescribed me Ambien. And then I started taking Ambien. And it was kind of like, I didn't, and this is where the internet just allows you access to everything. But I I found out that it was a controlled substance and it was something that could be abused. And this is sort of where my substance abuse addiction kind of started to grow and form and say like, hmm. Like, let's see what happens if I use it in a way that's not directed. Tried that, ended up enjoying that feeling and continuing sort of that behavior. And then I was no longer prescribed Ambien. And so I had, I was like, okay, what is, I still, I want to get that feeling back, but I, but I can't take Ambien anymore because, you know, my parents have caught on to the fact that like, I'm not taking it as directed. So then they, you know, took that, took that resource away from me. Um, rightfully so. And so then that's when I found alcohol and started to drink alcohol. Like I was taking the Ambien, not as directed, (laughs) 
my alcohol use was definitely not as directed. Um, and that's kind of like the progression that I made. And then that is like a whole nother part of my story where just the progression of alcohol and other substances and how that played a factor in my life. And ultimately that is what brought me to recovery, recovery from eating, recovery from substance abuse, recovery from, you know, working on my mental health and anxiety and depression. It was kind of, I was always working on that throughout everything, but it really kind of came to, to ahead once I sort of started to tackle my substance abuse addiction, which took a long time, but eventually did. And what's the point at which you knew things had to change? I kind of always had this feeling that I knew eventually I would need to, I knew sort of the way that I was using substances was not the way that, you know, a normal, a non-addict or alcoholic brain would, would use these substances. And I, and I kind of had that idea in my head because, um, substance abuse runs in my, in one side of my family. Um, and so I'd always been sort of warned as, as a kid by my parents say, you know, this is something that's a part of our family. It's not a part of my immediate family, but it's part of my extended family. So I was kind of like, you know, the kid in me was like, yeah, 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 whatever. But I knew it was kind of there. So I always had this lingering feeling that I was not doing it as every as same way everyone else was doing. And so then. So can I ask you, there? Yeah. did you, did you outside of knowing that piece that perhaps you had a biological predisposition or vulnerability, did you feel in your body that it was something you couldn't control or did it feel like it was to self-medicate and to numb out emotions? What did it feel like consciously? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it 100% got to the point where like, I felt like it was no longer a choice. Like I felt like I needed to wake up and drink in order to get to the sort of normal state of being that everyone else is. And that's because my body became, you know, physically dependent upon alcohol. Um, in the beginning though, like, yeah, I definitely felt like it made me feel different. I don't know necessarily the beginning. It didn't feel like I thought I was still in control of it. Um, it didn't feel like it was completely out of my control. Um, and I believe, you know, after sort of learning all about like um, addiction and kind of how it works in the brain and all the research that's been done about it, you know, I think I thought that I had a choice, but I didn't actually have a choice. Like my body was sort of, you know, and I struggled with that because I thought being an alcoholic and addict to the very beginning, like I thought it was a choice that I was making. And I was like, why am I making a choice to engage in this behavior that's harming the people around me, that's harming myself. Like I thought I had a choice, but I really like, you know, my body really was like, uh-uh, like you don't have a choice. Like this is, you know, this is what we're gonna do. So I, I carried a lot of shame and guilt. I was like, why am I choosing to just be this horrible person over and over and over again? Um, so yeah, I was, I was struggled. I struggled with if it was, you know, in my control or not in my control. Since these struggles with control and why she was using, Dylan has found her way to a healthier way of living through sobriety and recovery. Listen further as Bridget reflects with Dylan on sobriety, modeling, and mental health. What are the most, what are the most important things you've learned from sobriety and recovery, I guess? The main things, if I was to sum it up, the main things that I've learned. Um, 
be humble and have humility. Um, and at the end, like the, the main, the first thing that's going to take me down and cause me to struggle is my ego. Like I need to break my ego down. And that's what it really took for, for me to get when I did eventually get sober, cause it, it took me a little bit, like a couple years to, to get sober, sober. Um, but I just had to completely like humble myself and realize that I'm not the center of the universe and that the world does not revolve around me. And that just because I'm suffering, everybody else around me needs to suffer. And just be like, yeah, definitely ego. Ego is the first thing. And, and, you know, something that's, that's taught in recovery and in many different forms, you know, there's many different forms of recovery. Um, but one thing I love is whatever you put before your sobriety is the first thing that you're going to lose. So if I put, you know, my relationship or my family or my career before my, because I can't have any of those things without my recovery and, and my sobriety. And that's just for me. You know, I don't believe that's the way that everybody needs to live, but I know that that's the way that I need to live. Um, so yeah, the main thing I've learned is is to have humility, um, to break down your ego and just say at the end of the day that, you know, I don't know all the answers and that's okay, you know, and seek guidance. I think the main thing that I've done as sort of like I'm in recovery is I'm not trying to tackle the world all at once, you know, I'm sitting and I'm watching and I'm observing, I'm observing the people around me, I'm observing the people that I look up to, you know, the people that I admire, the people that, you know, have something that I, not necessarily that I want, but have something that I want, they have something that I find attractive, you know, for example, that could be somebody with killer self-confidence, that just knows how to operate in social settings. And I see that person, you know, I just watch and I observe and I see how they would react to things. And I say, okay, great. How can I make my own version of that? I don't want to copy them because if I do what they're doing, it's not going to work for me. I have to do it and take into consideration like my, my own, my own way of doing things, my own emotions and my own sort of thoughts and feelings and tendencies. So yeah, it's, it's humbling and, and just being quiet and observing um, and learning from others. Yeah, observing and learning from others. So now let's fast forward to the present a little bit. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you're not modeling anymore, but how do you feel about modeling today in the context of the modeling industry and your experiences within the industry? Yeah. It's, it's so um, funny because a lot of people who, who knew that I used to model, they always asked me about it and they're like, you know, why aren't you doing it anymore? Um, and the modeling industry, how do I feel about it now? It's so hard sometimes to like separate your, your personal, your personal experiences from, from the industry. I admire the industry as sort of a whole. Like I think the idea of 
the modeling industry and fashion. I love fashion. I love photography. I love seeing sort of like the creative and the artwork and everything that goes into it. Like I still, you know, I'll still watch like runway shows. I'll still, I'll still watch like sort of follow along with what's, what's going on in, in, in the industry. Um, and I think in theory, like sort of the idea of, of being a model, like I could never achieve this, but sort of, you know, being a model, you as the model, like it's, it's, it's your business, <clears throat> you know, you're not, you're not, I mean, at the end you are working for brands and companies, but you're in control of everything. So in theory, what I always tried to make modeling was my business, my brand, my control, and just, and I, I've seen a lot of models who've been able to sort of, you know, do that. Obviously, I don't know exactly how they've done it. And I couldn't do it for myself because I think I was just so young when I tried. I didn't have enough life experience and I didn't have enough self-awareness and self-control to not let like other lifetime temptations sort of get in the way. And that's where sort of, you know, my substance abuse disorder came into play and it made it you know, whatever you're doing in your life, like when you, when you're, when your addiction starts to pick up, it's like, it clears the path of everything. So when I finally got sober, it allowed me to kind of look at my life. And I, I thought for a while, I was like, do I want to go back into modeling? And I've always kind of, I had, I was like, you know, maybe one day, like maybe one day I'll go back into the industry and I'll be able to do it how I always wanted to do it, but never could, which was, you know, enjoy. It's just, it's fun to travel with it. It's fun to meet new people. It's fun to get connected to these incredible like artists that just have such a unique eye and they create such beautiful things and, you know, and connect with other models too. I have so much like admirations and stuff for, for, for people who are still doing it because I know the work behind the scenes that, that it takes. And but I do still have like feelings about like the industry in terms of, I think there's a lot of things that the industry could do a lot better. And the problem is just the lack of, in my opinion, this is all obviously in my opinion, the lack of structure that it provides, like it provides a sort of false idea of structure. You know, you've got your agent, you've got these clients that you're working for, you know, they provide you with model housing, they provide you with sometimes like an allowance, you know, which obviously like, you know, you eventually, it eventually comes out of your paycheck, but it's this structure that doesn't actually really do anything. Like I wanted to, I sort of, you can't make your agent, your parent, your guardian, your person that, you know, your therapist, your psychiatrist, like you can't make that person your everything. You have to have sort of supports around besides that. Um, and at the beginning, I kind of, you know, I think you also have to find the right people to work with, right people who, and it's hard to do, find the right people that really value you for you and your uniqueness and what you have to bring to the table and will help you sort of achieve all your goals while keeping in mind sort of, you know, your emotional, you know, needs and everything like that. And that's hard. That's fine. Hard to find in modeling, hard to find in, in regular business, you know, just going and being, going into business with somebody, whether, you know, it's your own company or, or joining sort of a larger corporation. It's always at the end of the day, a lot about like the people you work with and just kind of like 
you're lucky if you find a good group of people. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I still have a lot of respect and admiration. Like I, I don't, I've chosen to not go back into the industry just because there's other routes that I've sort of explored that I enjoy more. But yeah, no, I'll always have like a very distant sort of love and love for it. But I think there is a lot that needs to change. I'm not going to do anything, but it's definitely a lot that needs to change. In, in the face of all that you know now, what advice would you like to give to young Dylan who is just starting and just like starting to learn how to model? Yeah. Yeah. My first instinct, like my, my parent, even though I'm, I'm not a parent, but eventually one day I will be, um, my parental instinct is like, like sometimes, you know, I'll have, um, family, we have family friends. I'll come to me and be like my daughter, you know, she's young, she's interested in modeling. Like, does Dylan have any advice since he used to be in the industry? My gut instincts like, don't do it. (laughs) But that's only because that, that comes from my place of fear around it. Um, and that comes from, um, yeah, just my own fear. So I don't say don't do it. Um, because I learned that if you tell somebody who's, who's young and developing, like they can't do something or they shouldn't do something, that's the exact thing that they're going to want to do. Cause that's how my mind operated. It was like, whatever you tell me, I'm not going to do, I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it better than you thought I was ever going to do it. Um, I'm just going to show you. That's kind of how I walked around the world when I was at all. I was like, I'm going to show you, you know, I'm going to be the best. And I would say, do it. I would say it's a great opportunity for, I hate when people like go on and on about opportunity and potential. And it's like, you know, all that stuff. And yes, those things do exist. I would say, have fun with it. Make it your own. At the end of the day, like you don't have to say yes to everything. You know, even if your agent tells you like, this is this is what's going to make you big. You know, if you color your hair a different color, if you cut bangs, they always, my agency always wanted me to get bangs and I never did. Um, but this is what's going to make you big. And if you don't capitalize on this one single opportunity, everything's gone. That's just not the case. I mean, yeah, maybe you'll lose some opportunities, but that's not your entire world. I would just say like advice to younger Dylan is be decisions that you make right now in this developmental period they're not going to be the end all be all you will have a million other decisions like it to come and you will have opportunities if you make what you feel is the wrong decision to make the right decision it's just don't get caught up I was always so hard on myself and I was like don't get caught up with right versus wrong and what I should and shouldn't do um I hate the word should in general should is just like I just cringe every time I hear it yeah, I would say just, you know, it's not the end of the world. Final question. And this is the $50 million question, something that we ask everybody. If you had 50 million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about mental health? Since it's my, Insta- you know, my Instagram account, what would I want to tell 50 million people? I'd want to say, you know, it's okay to need help. And it's okay to say that you need help and have to, have to, have to have supports. Like you are not, I'm sure this is what, you know, what, what everyone answers this question. Like you are not alone. The strongest thing 
for me, in my struggles with mental health and with an eating disorder and with, you know, addiction, a lot of times what, what sort of the first thing that made me look at those behaviors was, was fear. Fear, you know, like with my eating disorder, for example, I was told that, you know, my body was going to shut down and I was at risk of, of dying um, or not being able to have kids. And that was what made me pay attention. But what actually helped me recover was reaching out, talking about it, seeing other people, seeing what they did, seeing their lives now, you know, five, 10 years down the line seeing and observing how other people did it and connecting with other people um, of similar experiences, you know, and, and most likely they're not going to look like you or talk like you or walk like you, you know, sometimes if I'm, you know, you can get advice from everyone, even if they're younger than you, if they're older than much older than you, if you know, they're just not even from your same city, you know, or country. And it's just reaching out and knowing that it's okay, that it's okay to reach out and reach out as soon as you can too with mental health. Like I wish I started seeing a, a therapist a lot sooner um, and find the right supports too. That was the main thing about, um, you know, like I had the bad experience with that one psychiatrist, but I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, someone told me this the other day, actually, it may, I don't know if it was you or I heard it somewhere else, but it was like, you know, choosing a therapist is like choosing a dating partner. Like, you know, the first person you go on a date with ever I mean if you're really lucky like maybe it'll be here like one and done like married um kids family happy all that stuff but most likely the first person that you meet and you talk with is not going to be the person that is right for you so if you're looking for a therapist for the first time um and you're you're seeking out um help for mental health no matter what it is um if it's you know it's a minor anxiety or some major, you know, mood, personality things. If you're looking for a therapist for the first time, that first one doesn't have to be your one and only. And if it's not a good experience, try again, try a different therapist. It's okay, you know, maybe you think that you'd be better fit with like a woman, but then turns out like, you know, a man is 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 better suited or, you know, I just, I think I see a lot of people come into the mental health and a lot of people are afraid when they come into, to, that realm of of mental health and they have one experience and maybe it's not maybe it's a neutral experience or maybe it's a negative experience and then they pull back completely and just say no I don't want to touch it um but I say like keep trying again because eventually you will find like it took me a good three or four years before I found my place in which I felt the most supported had the psychiatrist and psychologist that worked for me had the mentor had the coach had the all that stuff the support network that I needed in order to sort of flourish um it took me a long time so I would say just keep trying 
I had 50, back to the question, I always lose track of the question. Back to 50 million, if I were to tell 50 million followers something about mental health, um, I would just share my own story. I think that's the most powerful. I wouldn't try and tell them like what they should or shouldn't do. Um, I would just share my story, share what worked for me, which is was to reach out, to try and reach out as early as you can. And if you have a bad experience reaching out, just try, try again. That's what I would say. I love it. Thank you so much, Dylan, for coming on. This is such an important conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's review Dylan's story. Dylan started modeling officially at the tender age of 10 after she and her sister were scouted at a San Francisco Giants baseball game. Because she was so young, her early days of modeling were fun-filled, exciting, and a family affair with her mother accompanying. It was not until her early teens where things became more difficult and her mental health story begins. She moved to London at the age of 14, where she worked as a model, navigating London on the tube and going to castings by herself in which she started to feel more alone and homesick. Her eating disorder began to emerge. It progressed to a severity in which she had extensive physical health issues, including on her blood pressure and circulatory system. She was later hospitalized for two months in her junior year of high school. But as she recovered from her eating disorder and was concurrently working through depression and anxiety, her addictive pattern was transferred to something else, substances and alcohol. Dylan is now in recovery from her eating disorder, from depression, anxiety, and from substance and alcohol use, and through a strong community of support, is now opening up about her story in the hopes of helping others. So now, let's get clinical. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three aspects of Dylan's story. First, her early years of social development. Second, her eating disorder. And third, the transition to a substance use disorder. On the first, what about her early years of social development? Dylan describes how her modeling career, although at first exciting, became isolating. Because her friends were playing soccer and living a normal middle school life, she was doing something that nobody else was doing and was starting to feel ostracized by her peers. Body image issues began as she hit puberty. On one hand, she was getting feedback from the modeling industry that she was not thin enough for high fashion when she was in London. And on the other, she was made fun of by her volleyball teammates for being too thin and was nicknamed Thigh Gap. Can you imagine how those contrasting messages could be so distressing for a young person? Dylan mentions that she had a bad high school experience because she did not fit in. She put everyone's needs ahead of herself and did not have a way to work on her emotional health. So let's stop there. Dylan's story is just one of many examples of why we as professionals need to intervene early, why we need to teach young people about emotional health, and why it's our duty to ensure that mental health education reaches young people. Could some of Dylan's story have been prevented had the right supports be put in place in schools and elsewhere? Most likely. So on the second, what about her eating disorder? Dylan has been diagnosed with bulimia nervosa. She developed this in the context of her varsity volleyball experience. When Dylan looked up information on the internet about binging and purging, after the mere suggestion that she must have it if she was so thin, it planted a seed. And with her social and relationship challenges, and because she didn't have an outlet for her anger and emotions, purging became a temporary antidote. 
Dylan mentioned that she has an addictive personality and that this behavior was about control, control over her emotions. It quickly escalated to purging after every meal and eventually she was hospitalized. Dylan had the self-awareness to know that this behavior was affecting her negatively, but the temporary relief that it brought perpetuated the behavior despite the guilt and shame she might've been feeling. So what's the takeaway here? It's her underlying emotional health that was unaddressed that needed attention and nurturing. So on the third, what about the transition to substance and alcohol use disorder? Dylan was diagnosed with anxiety and depression after recovery from bulimia. She describes in the interview that her addictive pattern transferred from eating disorder to substance use disorder. She started having difficulty sleeping and was prescribed Ambien. She learned through the internet that Ambien has abuse potential And again, the mere suggestion tempted her to start taking it, not as directed. From Ambien, she went to alcohol and then other drugs. And in the end, it was the combination of alcohol and other drugs that ultimately brought her into recovery from anxiety, depression, and her eating disorder. I can't say enough. We are honored to have spoken with Dylan and to hear her story, beginning from her early days of modeling through to her teenage years. And our hope is that you too can be inspired to work on your mental and emotional well-being to set the stage for the years ahead. Many people struggle with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, alcohol and substance use disorders. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power and connection in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. Thanks for listening to Model Mentality. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.